Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. What do people really want living in America? They want their money protected. They want their houses protected. They want to be able to walk down the street to the tavern, have a beer, and not have someone yell at them or threaten them or beat them up because they won't raise a fist. This is John Cass from Chicago filling in for Dan Proft, the Dan Proft Show, and with me, Scott Shelley, right, market analyst for Fox News. Scott, what the hell's going on in this country? I can't have a beer without getting yelled at, <laughs> and I'm worried about my money. Yeah, it's they pretty much got all the corners of the worry kind of locked down, don't they? I mean, yeah, the uh, the minor assault on people trying to just uh, mind their own business really is what I think you know gets people upset and. As Donald Trump would say, not to make it too political, but I mean, we need, in, in order to get any of those things done that those people want to have done, you need to have a basic foundation of law and order. I mean, nothing happens without law and order. But uh, also, with law and order comes, how, you know, how to prosper, and and, and prosperity is is uh, definitely comes out of law and order, and part of that is obviously the markets and. We're all still kind of reeling in the business. I, I comment on this for Fox uh, a lot, a couple, three times a week. And yesterday we had a, a, a big a big sell-off. Um, it looks as though things have stabilized a little bit. But it's interesting to see the differences in the candidates and the differences in uh, law and order and how that might affect where we go with uh, your money and your retirement and where you can go and spend your money in your retirement. Uh, but they're all intertwined. And, again, I would say that the basic tenet is the fact that we need to have Safety to do that, and safety then spawns all the other things. I'm thinking about maybe putting my money in the mattress and sh- taking it with me to Hungary. <laughs> well, I tell you. I, can, cause I, I got an idea. I, I've never been to Hungary, but I've got an idea that it might be safer. I, I've been to Hungary, and it would be safer, yes. I've been to the Elizabeth Bridge and uh, the Gellert Hotel where uh, the Fuhrer made his headquarters once he conquered that little that oh, little oh, place. Oh. But um. Yeah, I, I would say there's a, 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 an overlooked mantra in financial investing, and that is is that you know cash is an asset class. <laughs> it's a, you know it, you can, by holding cash, that's an asset class. You don't have to do anything with it. You can because sometimes uh, that's the best thing is you know we say a lot. I'd like to get a return of my money, not just on my money, because things get kind of dangerous. Um, as we begin filling in for Dan Proft. Uh, I think that I introduced myself or not. I'm John Cass, columnist of the Chicago Tribune, editorial board member of that newspaper, and probably not one of George Soros' best friends. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would suggest that. Anytime you mention him, uh, you get all the woke people in, in newsrooms all over upset, including mine. 
Uh, but, you know, we're seeing something around the country, and we're going to have great guests today. Tom Bevan. Tom Bevan will be here. David Harsani. David Marcus. Chadwick Moore. And also the great Professor Charles Lipson. And one thing I've been interested about throughout this period is the temper tantrum that began when Donald Trump won in 2016. And ever since, it's become increasingly violent, Scott Shelley. Um We had the hefty young woman sitting on the steps screaming her head off. I'll never forget that picture. We had the anchors screaming and crying on on national television. Then we had the um, FBI, the CIA, intelligence agencies, and others beginning to spy on the president and a wor- and working in concert, I believe, with members of the establishment corporate Democratic Beltway media. I guess I'm part of that, although I'm a conservative, uh, to delegitimize him. And as we continue with Black Lives Matter protests, with looting, with Antifa, with riots, people accosted in small little taverns in Pittsburgh, it becomes constant force, constant force, constant intimidation. Am I overblowing this? I don't think I am. No, you're probably underblowing it if there's such a term. I I couldn't agree with you more. And the visceral reaction to, to, to Donald Trump becoming president, having never run for anything, and the only thing he has running, he wins as the president of the United States, is uh, I, it's, 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 I find it terribly interesting, you know, because I, you know, I, I lean to the right. I, 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 uh, I could not stand Barack Obama. I'm from Chicago. I knew a lot about him before he hit the national scene. Me too. I knew about his buddy Tony Resco. Yes, right. The yeah. real estate and, I, and I knew all the henchmen and the dirty. Yeah. The, oh, it doesn't matter. But Ron Emanuel. Yeah, <laughs> and so, but I, I couldn't stand it. But I didn't waste my time wailing at a wall or uh, right. not going to work and picketing forever and ever and ever. I just got on with my life. Right. I probably could not stand him as much as a lot of these people don't like Donald Trump. But they're handling it so much more differently than I did about my, you know, this this visceral reaction to. This guy is, uh, I find, absolutely astounding. And, and, and they all loved him until he ran, right? I mean, all, right. how many pictures of all mm-hmm. the awards that he received from every different community and ethnicity and then all this. And how much money did he give them, to along the way? And then here we are. Black I, I people loved him. Women loved him. Yeah, everybody loved everybody him. Everybody did. You know? And it was because he was a character. As president, he threatens their – he threatens the – and one thing I want to get in with the guests and with you during the show – as president, he threatens the established order, and many of them are entrenched in Washington, become like the uh, courtiers of old France and the Palace of Versailles. Mm-hmm. They work against their people. They work against them. Um, I'm not saying Trump's a charmer or a prince, but I think that those folks in that establishment, right, uh, Democrat and Republican, are nothing more than the what I call the Kamalists of Washington after the Kamalists of Turkey who worked in the deep state there years ago and thwarted every popular uprising they could using the military and force. But now we have force 
and the Kamalists are are making a deal in some way implicitly with or maybe overtly with the, uh, the mob, which is dangerous. Dangerous as we go to an uncertain election. They're talking about coups. They're talking about... Well, they've anointed the mob, in essence, if you ask me. I mean, it's almost an arm of their movement. Just like uh, journalism. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Good point. Absolutely true. And uh, it's interesting to see how they're deploying those assets to help destroy the guy because, you know, for the last four years, they haven't been able to get their little brown envelope on a t- in a timely fashion like they used to before he showed up, regardless of which side of the aisle. We're sitting in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. Dan's golfing, and we get to talk to really interesting people and not Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll listen to this. But um, the question I keep coming back to is it's the little things that people remember. I've been doing covering politics in Chicago for 35 years. I've watched every crook, every crooked scheme. I see it in Washington writ large, and it's the little things. Getting your hair done when you're telling people not to get your hair done, Nancy. Um, screaming at somebody when they're trying to drink a beer. Threatening a senator who supports your aims about justice for Breonna Taylor. Right. All of this are the little things, and the, the, media, the Beltway media wants to talk policy, 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 uh, and shift policy. And the people of America see these little things, and they decide where they're going to be. Do you agree? I do. And obviously you've mentioned the things that have happened of late, and it happened with Ms. Lightfoot as well. Um, and I think that in my short time on this earth so far, you're, you're exactly right. The uh, optics of a small action, not words, um, are way more – Truthful and more and heavier than than words, and I think you're absolutely right. The search for virtue continues among children looking for purple unicorns, but realistic people, grown-ups, understand that you can't find virtue in politics. You look for policy, and as Aristotle said long before Maya Angelou, "Show me who you are." Mm. That's that's probably the most important thing right there, and. And in showing who you are, if you do one of those bad optics, that gets that's gonna that's gonna be the the headliner. That's gonna be the billboard. John Cass, Chicago Tribune, Scott Shelley, Fox Market Reports. We're sitting in for Dan Proft, who's golfing on the Dan Proft Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. The thing about politics in America is that there's a lot of people who talk and talk and talk, and wind blows, and the wind blows, kind of like what my grandfather used to say, the politicians talk. And the donkey breaks wind. <laughs> he said it in Greek. It sounds better in Greek. My mom would be very upset if I said that on the radio. <laughs> um, but one guy who speaks 
plainly and I think with great common sense, is my favorite political analyst in the country and my friend, Tom Bevan, co-founder and executive editor of Real Clear Politics. You go there every morning if you're interested in a variety of opinion and also the Real Clear Politics polls. Good morning, Tom Bevan. Good morning, Mr. Cass. How are you? Fine, Tom. Hey, Tom, uh, after the show, do you want to go to Pittsburgh and get a beer? <laughs> Just grab anyone you want, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Just walk down the street and sure. That's the right price. Free, huh? yeah. What the hell happened? Okay, to set the stage, I'm sure you all know it. A couple was in a bar or tavern in Pittsburgh, and like many people across the country, uh, they've been accosted by angry woke mob, I guess this was Black Lives Matter, or I don't know who they were, screaming at them, taking their beer, demanding that they kneel in fealty to whatever leftist politics they support. How, did the, how, did the, how does America react to something like that, Tom, in the context of uh, what Scott and I were talking about, that it's the little things, like haircuts for Nancy Pelosi, it's the little things that stick with people. I'm not saying it's a little. Yeah, funny. I mean, it's one of those like the the Nancy Pelosi story in and of itself isn't a big deal, but it's 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 one data point, and when you have 500 of those little stories that all connect the dots to a bigger, larger truth, uh, then suddenly it, it does become an issue, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing. I mean, what happened in this? Uh, what happened in, in Pittsburgh, uh, you know, these folks were marching down the street and they came over and, and you know, see that video. I mean, it's just, it's, it's insanity. It's just crazy. And he's not and they he, caught up to the, they caught up to the, the, the protesters afterwards. And, and one of them said, we were talking to people that were talking to us. That beer was consumed. The beer that was consumed was an offer. The glass that fell was a mistake. That was his example. And then they, and then they talked to the couple that was sitting there and they said, we absolutely did not offer that person our beer. And, you know, um, so it's just a, it's, it's, it's craziness. I think the public gets that. And when they see stuff like they recoil at it, and that's what the Democrats are really, you know, that's what they need to address without alienating their base. That's the needle that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are, are looking to thread here over the last, you know, 50 something days. That's difficult because when you, when you uh, talk about calmness and love, you want to sit on a hill and teach the world to sing or whatever Biden re might remember from that commercial from the 70s. Um, the problem is that your supporters are out there playing Chicago way muscle. You know, you, everybody from Chicago knows what muscle is. You're, they muscle these people. They're intimidating them. They're, it's a constant, you know, the, the left believes not in liberty, but in force of all kinds, physical force, government force. And you mentioned the needle threat, the threading the needle. How difficult is it for Biden to thread that needle on riots, on what we politely call civil, civic unrest, civil unrest, when buildings are being burned? How does he thread it? Well, I mean, he's denounced violence, and the question is whether that's enough for, for folks. Um, you know, again, particularly, I mean, we have a piece on the site today by Robert Borsage in The Nation saying, 
that Biden, you know, he must resist calls for a sister soldier moment. And and Borsas was actually work, used to work for Jesse Jackson, was there when Bill Clinton gave his infamous sister soldier speech back in the day. Um, and, you know, Biden can't really do that because it would alienate folks. Um, and But he has condemned the violence. And, and so the question is, you know, is that going to be enough for suburban voters in particular to assuage any fears that they have that when they look around that the violence that's going on in some of these cities may be coming to, to their towns and their suburbs in, in the near future or in, in the future under a Biden administration. It, I, you know, we'll have to wait and see what the data says. It looked like Trump had been gaining some ground with his law and order message, even though I don't know if you saw his remarks in uh, North Carolina. Nice. <laughs> Trump's so funny because he just flat out says, he says, you know, my consultants say I shouldn't use law and order. And he's like, but, eh, you know, they, they say I should right. say public safety. Um, and he's like, eh, well, whatever. I'm just going to say law and order anyway, because that's, that's what I really mean. So um, he, he's using a blunt instrument, which is, you know, we'll see how much that resonates uh, in, in the suburbs. But, but both campaigns are trying to get their messaging right on this to appeal to those voters, because those, that's where the election is going to be decided, in, especially in these upper Midwest swing states. Tom, but, uh, this is Scott Shelley, uh Fox Market contributor. Uh, I think <clears throat> you're exactly right, but I also think that he's got so many competing factions that he has to deal with that this is going to be like trying to thread a needle in a 40-mile-an-hour wind, right? I mean, he, he's got uh, Kamala Harris saying that these riots are going to continue and they should continue. His number two saying that. How does he denounce what his number two is saying versus what his, uh, you know, with all the, all the people that are around him are trying to tell him to do, and they're pulling him in a, a hundred different directions? I think it's going to make it almost impossible to thread that needle. I think he's got a very high hill to climb. You might be right. I mean, we'll have to wait and see. Again, he he has, you know, he has denounced the violence. I mean, he gave that speech in Pittsburgh. He's said it in interviews now. He said, look, violence is wrong. These riots are wrong. And, and he's even said, you know, most police are good. And Don't, don't take the and people's that has, beer. Don't take their beer. <laughs> and and he's caught some flack for that by, by the more militant aspects, more progressive aspects of, of his base. And so um, the question is, is, you know, is it going to, is it going to turn off folks and uh of his base. I mean, he, he's got to make sure that, that he gets every Democratic rank-and-file voter to turn out to afford to have. You know, we're seeing these polls that he's, his, his support among Hispanics is soft. He's losing some young African-American voters who are either going to, you know, maybe not going to go vote for Trump, but just not going to go vote. And he can't afford to have that happen. Um, but at the same time, he has to do enough to, again, win over those swing voters. So it's going to be tough. Uh, I agree. Um but, you know, the polling right now doesn't necessarily show that it's hurting him that bad. I think it might have hurt him a little bit. That's why he came out of the basement earlier than, than I think his campaign and, and folks expected. But um, but we'll see. We'll see in, in the final analysis whether he's going to do enough. You might be right. It, it might be too, too difficult to try and walk that line, but uh, we won't know that until November 4th. We'll have to explore that in a just a minute. Stay with us during the break, Tom. 
This is John Cass and Scott Shelley sitting in for Dan Prof on the Dan Prof Show. Show.com. We're back on the Dan Prof Show. John Cass from the Chicago Tribune and Scott Shelley from Box Markets. Sitting here talking now with Tom Bevan, co founder and executive editor of Real Clear Politics. You go to that site. Because every politician and political operative in the country goes to that site first every morning. Tom, we were talking about this problem for Biden to thread the needle uh, to denounce uh, violence, which he did, I guess, technically, passively. It was kind of like dipping, for me, like eating toast that was old toast dipped in uh, warm tapioca pudding. There wasn't really a lot of meat to it. But... uh, but um, ne- nevertheless, he, he did uh, say the words, I denounce violence. Don't he, be violent. He said the words, right. But at the same time, as we see, um, we see images of violence, political violence, that the Democratic Party uh, wa- hoped that it could take advantage of. I think most Americans understand that. And uh, you have these reports about Kamala Harris tweeting out, let's raise money for Right, the violence, the violent yeah. people in Minneapolis, and she wonders why maybe Biden's having some trouble in the Iron Range up there. You know what's fascinating about this campaign, John, is that it's you know for all of the talk that Trump is just a, a unrepentant congenital liar and can't tell the truth, right. have all the fact checks, and he's told twenty six thousand four hundred twenty two lies in four years. The Democratic campaign is almost entirely about basically gaslighting the public. Yes. I mean, into the idea, right? You've got Joe Biden saying, Kamala Harris and, and the allies saying, this violence is all Trump's fault. It's all his supporters' fault. It's white nationalist's fault. It's Donald Trump. He's fanning the flames. He's engaging this. Joe Biden said the other day, you know, Trump's the one who wants to defund the police, not me. Uh, you had Andrew Cuomo <laughs> saying Trump caused the New York virus. You know, all the deaths in New York, this is all Trump's fault. So sort of across the board, it's this bizarre campaign to take everything that's happening and blame it on Trump, irregardless of, of you know, facts or chronology or, or any of that stuff. Uh, you know, again, is it going to work? I, I don't know. I mean, Trump is certainly down in the polls uh, at this point in the race and and you know we're in the final sprint now and there will be debates and, and whatnot but it is an interesting strategy to just try and blame you know everything i mean at first they didn't acknowledge the violence now they're acknowledging it but but saying that it's trump's fault the difference tom is that this democratic party has a partner it is corporate media beltway corporate democratic media i've only been in the media all my life so i, I kind of get a sense of what it is um, and you can say ridiculous things like you mentioned, uh, Trump caught, Trump killed people in New York or whatever Kamala Harris says in Joe Biden. And if, if there's no pushback from media, there's no the, – the story doesn't get out. Isn't that the 
real political game to control the so-called, I hate the word, narrative. Because narrative <laughs> means, narrative is just, that's my, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But without that, how do they? Well, listen, you know, we can talk separately about the, the Trump, the Atlantic story on calling, you know, allegedly calling the military suckers and losers. I thought what was most instructive about that episode was the fact that the Atlantic, you know, they published the story and then they send a reporter to the, tr- the Biden press conference the next morning. He's called on at that press conference first by Biden's campaign staff. And he asks them a question about, you know, how awful Trump's soul is, you know, based on our story. And, you know, and the Biden campaign immediately took that Atlantic story and turned it around into an ad that they ran all over the place. Even even as a dozen folks from the administration were going on the record saying, I was there, it didn't happen. Even Bolton uh, hates Bolton. Trump. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, and I, I had <clears throat> tweeted something like, if you imagine... Imagine the shoe being on the other foot, right? Imagine a, a right-leaning publication goes with a story, says four anonymous sources say Joe Biden slapped his wife on, you know, August 2nd. Um, and, and even as, so, and then, and then there are a dozen staffers who come out and say, I was in the room with Joe Biden and Jill Biden, and it never happened. Do you, th- and, and the Trump campaign just decided, you know what, screw it, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to run an ad about it anyway and put those allegations out there. Um, do you think the media would just let that happen? Do you think Twitter would just not not flag that as misleading information or manipulative or whatever? Do you think that uh, if if that right wing publication then went to the press conference the next day and Trump called on it? I mean, just... uh, Tom Bevan, co-founder and executive editor of Real Clear Politics, get there on RealClearPolitics.com. Sometimes you might even see my column there. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, buddy. For being here. I'm taking what they're giving cause I'm working for a living. Oh, oh, oh. John Cass and Scott Shelley in for Dan Proft. You're on the Dan Proft Show. Well, Dan's vacationing and golfing <laughs> wherever he is and trying to trying to one-up me on an interview with Attorney General Barr later this day. Uh, he might be aggravating me just a little bit, even though he's a friend. But, uh, you know, Scott, the points Tom Bevan was making about media, it's always been my argument or my feeling that it wasn't really what the politicians said. It was how media covered it that really frosted me badly. For example, Barack Obama comes in to office. He's out of Chicago. He is a Chicago way guy. He's got Rahm Emanuel. He makes Richie Daly's brothers chief of staff as well. Valerie Jarrett's there. All the Chicago people are there. They want to wet their beak. Ashcroft was he? I don't think John Ashcroft. No, not Ashcroft. Uh, what was this? Uh, the guy with the mustache. Oh, it doesn't matter. And then there was Tony Resco. Yeah, he's right. a real estate right, real right. estate fairy. The Tribune wrote a story about it, but uh, much of the media didn't want to write it. And you know why they didn't want to write it? Because they were woke even then. Sure. They didn't want to write that Barack Obama. They'd rather write. They were like I don't know Scott. 
it seemed to me, did you ever watch uh, Chronicles of Narnia with the yeah. kids? Yeah, sure. Remember that little uh, girl, she gets lost in the wardrobe and goes into the new world of Narnia, yeah. snowy, Yes, and she's hungry and she's afraid, and she sees a forest fawn named Mr. Tumnus, <laughs> and Mr. Tumnus is this gentle fawn played by, uh, I forgot who played him, but he's a gentle little hairy fawn, and he makes her tea and cakes, and feel she feels so good, and he plays the pipes for her, and I thought, watching this nonsense of the way the media treated uh Obama compared to the way they treat Trump, it was like they they were the little kid in Narnia, and he was Mr. Tumnus, Mr. Obama, I mean. Yeah, well, it's like, yeah. And, and they I, just wanted to hug him. Well, exactly. And then when Obama or when Trump comes to office, it's like the clothes come off, right? It's like the thin, the thin veil of neutrality has been dropped. Yeah. And everything you thought actually came true. Um but it's it's just amazing to see how one side is treated versus the other, and I don't like even going. I don't even like going. Yeah, but remember when this happened? I don't like doing that. I just think that each event should stand on its own. And when you see these events, that you think, wow, this is pretty serious, or this has got some legs, and it doesn't have any legs, and it's not made out to be serious at all. Then then you, you know, then then you start to think that yourself, who can you trust? And what you, unless you see it, it's almost not worth. Reading almost because you you never know what you're going to be getting. The lack of we'll talk about all this uh, more with with our other guests, um, particularly this uh, this coup porn being discussed now. But um, I see it as be, because of the way they treated Obama, there is really no credibility left. No, in my business. No, we our my business has destroyed itself from within. And uh, as a result, and here's the problem: I really don't care if uh, Joy Reid has. Uh, or I don't even listen to her or watch her. These people from MSNBC and that. What worries me, though, is that in a time of chaos, in a time of chaos that the left has brought to the country, on upheaval, unrest, uncertainty about the election, and now we're going to do the Johnny Rocco. Johnny Rocco way, you know, we're going to count the votes the way we want to count them. Mail-in ballots for everybody. Amazing. I'm from Chicago. I know how this is done. And so are you. Yeah. And we know how this is done. And everyone's going to do mail-in ballots. Um, you know, here, somebody you said need, it, but you somebody... Need, you need media. There's nobody... Where is the reliable source? The checks and balances. Right. right. You're exactly right. Well, here's what I think is funny. Or not funny. It's just tragic. When we when it gets out what one side needs to to win, you know, after all the you know stroll up ballots have been you know cast, mm -hmm. do you think they're not going to find them? I'll tell you something. Um, in Chicago, everyone, there's a nice man. There's a nice man that comes to the nursing homes, and sometimes they bring a box lunch, and they bring several nice men. And maybe they have a lounge singer that comes to the nursing homes, too. Kind of like a f bad uh, Tony Bennett type yeah. of, you know what I mean? Hey, baby. Yes. And somebody like that. And they're doing their thing. And they have a box lunch with, they got the jello pudding in there because Joe Biden likes that. Yeah. <laughs> and they have all that. And then they say, okay, here are your absentee ballots. 
Well, and do you need? I've any, heard of that. I have you need any that. help? Right. And oh yes, young man, you've been so nice. And the guy's singing the song that Tony. Brown. A friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine, a Democrat, told me he described this exact scene during an election. Uh, do you need any help? And then the nice man comes and sits down with the seniors. What would you like to put in? Do you like John Cass? Oh, you wouldn't. You might not like him. He's conservative, but mm. Scott Shelley is. He's a nice man. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And the nice man helps you fill it out. Right. I, uh, I've heard of that. And that's the deal with uh, what I'm, I guess my concerns are is that once there's a number that they know they need, then they can focus, right? They won't ever really go out looking until they know exactly how much we need. And we count and we count again and we count again until we get it right. Johnny Rocco. <laughs> so I think uh, those are the scary things and this is how – um, the left, uh, with every single issue, there's no consistency. Dan talks about this all the time. There's no uh, frame of reference. There's no standard, right? Because each single thing is its own thing on its own, and they can move the goalposts for each and every single one of them. Look at this ridiculous mask thing. Right. COVID. Right. Well, you know, we're uh, just a two-week shutdown. Now it's a three, what, how many years? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and kids aren't going to school, and... People are, you know, and government loses revenue because the restaurants are closed and they have to raise taxes. Oh, wait, wake up, dude. We have we have a lawyer who's running the city of Chicago that didn't put two and two together that if you shut all the businesses down, there's not going to be any tax revenue. <laughs> I mean, it's it defies logic. Right. It's, right. it's the height of lunacy. But it's whatever story you can tell to get your power. And there are a lot of suckers out there who believe in purple unicorns that speak and you can hug but uh, guess what if you're listening to this show you don't believe in purple unicorns there you go we'll be right back we you're listening to the Dan Proft show on the Salem Radio Network You're listening to the Dan Prof Show on Salem Radio. This is John Cass, columnist and editorial board member of the Chicago Tribune. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the only conservative uh, in print in Chicago. <laughs> and uh, Scott Shelley from Fox Business. Uh, Scott, uh, you know, everyone talks about gaslighting. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie Gaslight with Charles Boyer? No, I did not, and I, I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't. But I, like I said earlier, I actually Googled the term to know what people were talking about. I, the, I love bringing up move, uh, random movies because uh, Quinn McCarthy and the other guys back there in the uh, production end will have to go search it out. But basically, it's a movie about Ingrid Bergman, who is convinced by her husband that she's going insane. Charles Boyer. Okay. Come with me to the Casbah. I have not seen it, but I know that movie. Right? Yeah. And that's what we're experiencing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where they're telling you these are mostly peaceful and, the you know, the, the building's burning down. Right? Well, mostly peaceful. They're Fire, telling you not to believe your peaceful. eyes. They're telling you not to believe your eyes. That's the hard part, right? I mean, because everybody's – I don't know how many smart people, smarter than I, had said, you know, don't believe what you read or believe half of what you read, you know, a quarter of what you hear. 
but, but all of what you see. And they're telling you not to believe the thing. The only thing that you can trust <laughs> is what you see. You're and right. that's, I think, causing a lot of problems. Yeah. And this business of uh, people being yelled at. One of the things that I'm told, because I hear Tom Bevan, and I hear uh, threading Joe Biden's threading the needle, and, and Tom says properly that Joe Biden has to try to do that. But at the same time, I hear that, and he's trying to thread the needle, and he's opposed to violence. I look and I see people coming up to others in restaurants and demanding, screaming at them, demanding that you raise your fist Mm-hmm. In fealty. Mm-hmm. Why don't you ask me to get down on my knees? Well, they did to some police chiefs, and they did. Get down I saw on that. Knees. I saw that. That's and and uh, guess I'm, what? Uh, what? Every day, every day. You want to talk about movies? Why don't you watch the Three Hundred? Okay, about my countrymen of old, because they did not kneel to Xerxes. I mean, you just don't kneel. I don't know what this kneeling is about. I you know, well, it's the yeah, it's giving up the power, and it's you know how many how many attitudes are they going to change by with those you know? It's just in in ten quick seconds, I could tell you that I lived in London for sixteen years in my thirty two year career in this business, and the only hope that I have is the real decency of people will ultimately come shining through because I, I don't think Americans will stand for that behavior really at the at their core in their garage they're going to talk about it this weekend with their buddies and say that's wrong, and the election that we just had in England with Boris Johnson against a very <clears throat> Joe Biden esque guy by the name of Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, was resounding defeat of those ideals that Jeremy Corbyn and Biden are espousing. The core decency came through in the end, and it was a huge victory for Boris Johnson. I'm, I'm just hoping that's the case again. That's Scott Shelley. I'm John Cass. You're listening to the Dan Prof Show on Salem. We'll be right back. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. And we're back. This is John Cass from the Chicago Tribune and Scott Shelley from Fox Business. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on Salem, and uh, we're going to get to our guest David Marcus. But he's one of my favorite writers. He writes for the Federalist, and I just wanted to tell you a story before we begin with him. I know a guy who was in, let's say, the foreign policy field, and um, in a major government in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, this fellow uh, went to work one day years and years ago and had, they were, had sensitivity training. <laughs> so uh, they all sat there. And these are people that are deciding life and death issues. I mean, serious business. And somebody gets up there on a whiteboard and starts lecturing them and writes, the reason why you're this way is because it's inbred. I-N-B-R-E-A-D. Like, put a crust on that bread, please. And they looked at each other. They said nothing. They got up. They walked out. I don't think people can do that now. They can't. Because um, 
Our next guest, David Harsani, has written a great piece, actually several I want to talk about, um, for The Federalist. Donald Trump is right to remove critical race theory from diversity programs. This is a key thing when you always ask, why is our country like this? Why are we like this? What happened to our country? This is the kind of stuff you have to know. Good morning, or good day, David. David Marcus at Blue Box Dave. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. Sorry about that um, kind of convoluted discussion, uh, introduction. But Dave, your piece on uh, in The Federalist on critical race theory, I think it's so important. And I, I wondered if you could tell our audience why it is important. Yeah, this is an issue that I've been following for several years now that, that's really coming uh, to a head in a way that, that I've expected it to for some time. Um, Christopher Rufo uh, from City Journal has been doing really remarkable work um, finding whistleblowers within the government who have to sit through these training sessions or struggle sessions where you know the, 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 the white government employees are sort of singled out as, as, as being you know bad, like, you know Things like individualism are, are called, you know, the, the white, and, and it's a problem for some reason. And, and some of these, like, they, at the end, it's almost malice. And then they have to write these confessions where they apologize to people of color for all the things that they've done. Um, it's, it's really horrible. It really sets race relations back enormously. Uh, and it's something that, that the Trump administration is right to focus on. The reason that I always knew it would come to a head is that this has been out there for a while, yes. but it hasn't really affected people's lives. So you could just kind of roll your eyes at it. Nobody likes to talk about race, so you just kind of like let it go. We're reaching the point now where we can't let it go because not only are government employees and corporate employees getting this, so are our kids, um, and it's a problem that has to stop. They are being taught this in their in their elementary schools. I... Absolutely. My, my son is, yeah. I mean, you know, we... His mom and I do our very best to, you know, counter-program that. But, yeah, absolutely. I just received a letter from uh, a reader in Chicago whose uh, child has to confess in, in a public school in Chicago, confess their, I guess, racial crime. I don't, I don't know what in what universe, gentlemen, does the left think that this does not lead to a bad outcome. Yeah, it will. And, and what this is rooted in, I believe, and, and part of what I wrote in the piece was that, you know, you can really find the beginnings of this in the early 1990s. There was a woman named Peggy McIntosh who kind of coined the term white privilege. Um, it was rooted in older things, but, but she sort of put it in this tasty package that was easy to understand. And one thing that we have to think about is if you were 50 years old in 1985, you were born at a time when people who had been slaves were still alive. You were an adult during segregation. You were an adult during the civil rights movement. You landed at 1985 where the Cosby show is the most popular show on television. And that family is the prototypical American family for that 50 year old. There was no denying that enormous racial progress had been made. If you're 50 in 2020, which I'm getting closer to right uh, over the past 30 years, it, it, it's been stagnant. It, it's, 
because all of the laws got changed and because we haven't been terribly successful, at least in the case of, of the black community, we have in, in other communities like the Asian community and, and to some extent the Hispanic community, things really feel like they're at a standstill. And unfortunately, there are people who are willing to take advantage of that you know, for money by creating these perverse narratives that um, far too many naive, progressive white people are, are willing to just eat up. And I, I don't get it, but they feel like they're getting something out of it, I guess. Well, these these, um, these corporate boondoggles, where you're right, they, they, there's a lot of money that's being spent on this, a lot of taxpayer money, by the way. And um, if, you, if you listen to some uh, halfway decent experts, a lot of what goes on in these things... Um, would be illegal if it was if the tables were turned. It, what they're yelling at these at these normal white men or young adolescent white boys, um, the, the types of uh, treatments that are going on to try to rid yourself of your microaggressions. I don't even know you know what uh, what you may or may not have or what you what may or may not uh, you know uh, end up being how you treat somebody or handle a situation would be illegal um, it, because number one it, it's based on race, it's based on how you look. Um, so there's a, a, a myriad of things I think this throws up, which obviously then would totally justify what Donald Trump did. But I think that, again, if you turn the tables and, and change the color, um, this is you know just unacceptable from day one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's, there's frankly no scientific data to suggest at all that this works. There, there's, there's not a piece of evidence in the world to suggest that anybody became less racist or that incidents of racism have declined as a result of critical race theory becoming the dominant anti-racism tool. In fact, if you look at polling in terms of how everybody thinks race relations are right now, it's basically at an all-time low. I mean, 10 years ago, people thought people had a much higher opinion of race relations in, in the United States than they do today. So I mean, aside from any moral questions, and this just doesn't work. It, it, it's just not working. It, it's not creating a more equitable society. It's creating a vastly more divided society. What is the outcome? If, if you look at it, I mean, you could look at it through the prism of the basket of deplorables or they're better clingers clinging to their guns or their religion, whatever Barack Obama said. Um, it seems that the, by design, it puts people in a box. It puts people in a basket. It marginalizes a great many tens of millions of people. It tells them they are wrong. They have been raised to think, ideally, that we should be have a colorblind society. And then they are, they are told, in no uncertain terms, in their Chinese communist struggle sessions in America, in, in corporate, the corporate and government world, that they must uh, atone for their sins, and everything is based on race. So what is the outcome, long-term or even short-term, of such things? I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think the outcome for society as a whole is, is absolutely disastrous and, and, and runs entirely counter to the American ideal that we don't treat people differently uh, based on the color of their skin. I think the people who get something out of this, for the most part, other than the people who are making money off of it, hmm. um, I think well-off progressive white people who feel a lot of guilt about having a house in the Hamptons when there's so much inequality and police brutality and all of these things that 
you know, they can't stand. Well, I mean, they're not going to give up the house in the Hamptons, right? So what they can do is they can read books like White Fragility and have brunch with their friends and talk about how they're doing the work and how they understand their privilege now, and they can pretend that somehow that makes them, you know, part of the solution. It's abject nonsense, it's but I, I think it, it's I think it soothes their conscience a yeah. little bit. And, of course, they won't give up their house in the Hamptons, but they might no. deny my sons a chance to have a house in the Hamptons. Right. Um, yeah. We are speaking to David Marks, Marcus of The Federalist, the great Federalist magazine. Uh, he, you can find him at at Blue Box Dave on Twitter. I really like talking to him, and we'll be talking to him again after the break. This is John Cass, Scotch Lady, filling in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. And we're back with David Marcus at Blue Box Dave. Writer at The Federalist, one of my favorites. And um, you're on The Dan Prof Show. John Cass, Tribune. Scott Shelley, Fox. We're filling in for Dan, who's golfing and trying to one-up me on an interview with uh, Attorney General Barr. And I don't know how he's going to do that from his golf cart in <laughs> Arizona, but he might have a way to do it. Um, David, the point you were making about the critical race theory and the guilt of, I guess, white, white wealthy elitist guilt that breeds, that sells it, that helps sell it in the corporate uh, structure. This this business, aren't they actually just cutting a deal? Isn't this this corporate, like white corporate woke people, cutting a deal with the left to protect their own power at the expense of others below them? Isn't that what we're seeing? Yes. Yes. I, I do think that some of that is, is going on. Um, I, another place that I, that I write for is the New York Post. And oh, I have yeah. the opinion editor. The opinion editor there is so Rob Amari, who's been doing some really wonderful work on this question of corporations going woke and sort of woke capitalism. And he has a theory that I tend to agree with, which is that more than anything else, what Trump threatens is the neoliberal globalist world order that both parties really supported over the past several decades. Um, Trump doesn't. Trump is more of a Buchanan protectionist type. And for a lot of major corporations, that's an awfully scary thing. And I think that has something to do with the fact that they've gone all in against Trump. And part of going all in against Trump is buying into all of this, you know, progressive gobbledygook. And so I, I think I, I think they are very much uh, making a deal to protect their own interests in that regard. And what is the uh, legal remedy that the left will apply uh, for Trump basically trying to take away, you know, removing critical race theory from these diversity programs? Well, how will they fight back legally? I, I'm not I'm not sure, actually, that I'm, I'm not sure that they're at least as far as the federal programs go. Um, I'm president. not sure that they're. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think as far as that goes, he's, he's probably acting within his authority. I do think you'll probably see some legal fights emerging from the corporate world uh, where more and more whistleblowers are coming out, um, where more and more people are saying, I've had enough of this. Um, and certainly in regard to the schools as well, um, where par- parents are fed up. I mean, listen, there was a really scary thing um, recently where one of these sort of race educators was talking about how it's a problem when we're doing Zoom education or remote learning <laughs> that parents are in the room, right? Because if parents are in the room, then they're hearing all this crazy yeah. stuff. And he said, oh, well, we can't have that. And, you know, my reaction to that is, as the father of, of a 10-year-old, you tell me to leave the room when you're teaching my kids. What the hell with that? Um, and I think that's the reaction of most responsible parents. So, yeah, you know, this, is, this, this, this fight is really starting now, and I, I, I think – understands that they've probably overplayed their hand a little bit here. And I would say, to that point, if they really wanted to, if the left or or those that are embracing this that aren't really making the money but are actually shoving down the throats of the people that work for them, really the only thing to do is to step down yourself because you achieved that position to make these calls. You're by, a chairman. You're it, the white man, right. the chairman you, of the you, company. You, you got to go, yeah, go, right? You got to go. Like yeah. all these people that lecture me from these uh, universities that were built with the hands of slaves about Black Lives Matter, I say, well, then you need to rescind your education, right, and and give it back, and 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 away we go. That's that's how I fight them. I mean, that's what I would say to them is that uh, this, if if you really believe in what you're saying, don't tell me what to do, show me what to do. It's all about power, David, isn't it? It's all about power, whether it's the power of turning people into. Uh, victims or uh, demons, demonizing them, or maybe just power like to punch somebody in the mouth if they dare walk in New York without an army. I'm also reading David's piece of The Federalist, or did did this run in the New York Post as well? This is Federalist, I think. Hey, Cuomo, Trump can come to Gotham anytime he wants. Just tell me briefly... For a party that says they denounce violence, Andrew Cuomo is acting like a tough guy. Yeah, you know, Andrew Cuomo, we have a term here in Brooklyn for, for uh, guys like Andrew Cuomo, and it's, you know, this freaking guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, the, the Trump administration turned our largest convention center into a hospital that we didn't turn out, you know, to need. He sent the USN comfort here that we didn't turn out to need. Cuomo said, I need 40,000 ventilators. He never did. But the Trump administration sent ventilators, and we never ran out of ventilators. For Andrew Cuomo to suggest that he speaks for the people of New York City in saying that Donald Trump, who's just as much a, a Queens boy as, as, uh, as Cuomo is, can't walk down the street. I mean, you know, obviously it, it depends where you are, but I, I don't know if Andrew Cuomo is familiar with Staten Island, for example, which is one of the boroughs of New York that Donald Trump won. And quite frankly, if I was Andrew Cuomo right now, who's still not letting restaurants open for indoor dining in Staten Island, I don't know how safe he'd be walking down the street. So, I mean, it was just ridiculous. I mean, he had Cuomo. If you remember back in March and early April, people were talking about, oh, they're going to replace Biden with Cuomo. Yeah. He became like America's leader. You I was one of that? them. I was one of them. They yeah. thought at least Cuomo could actually think. Beyond, like, you know, where's my banana pudding? I mean, 
I wanted somebody to think. When's my nap? When's my nap? Yeah, I mean, what what we didn't know at the time was that Cuomo had been shoving old people with COVID into nursing homes like Homer Simpson shoving donuts in his mouth. Exactly. You know that that came that came to pass, uh, and he's still trying to to hide that. Oh no, we don't need any investigations about that. I don't need you know, no bro- stinking numbers, right? Yeah, you know his his brother on CNN you know, shuts up real quick when when you bring that up. So yeah, it's it's you know. Cuomo, Cuomo had that moment. Things kind of went south for him. And this is just, I mean, now he's just acting like a caricature of himself. Um, I mean, that, that, that was just ridiculous and pointless. And like I said, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't speak for New York City. It's absurd. The idea of, what about the idea of uh, playing the tough guy, though, when you all your life you've been, bemo- you know, you've complained that people associate you with tough guys, and then you play it. At a time when your party is super violent on the streets, I just find yeah, this to be odd. Look, I, I do. I do think that for both, I, I think I think Trump and Cuomo are actually similar in a sense, which is that they're both outer borough guys. They're both Queens guys who grew up with wealthy and powerful dads. That's not the easiest thing to be in a place like Brooklyn or Queens. Um, and I think that a lot of, you know, I think a lot of the bravado that you see from both of them um, comes from that, that background. I mean, anyone who lives in Brooklyn or Queens knows, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole in New York. We never say, hey, that's a good slice of pizza. We say this is the greatest slice of pizza in the world, and everybody says so. So, I mean, they're very similar in that sense, but this right. was just a little over the top. I mean, this was really just like, you know, the idea that Trump needs an army to walk down Fifth Avenue in front of his hotel is just... You can't leave this joint. It's like the Bronx Tale now. You can't right, leave. Right. You can't leave right. now. It's Hotel California. Right, yeah, right exactly. <laughs> I was thinking more like Tolojolo. Great scene. Yeah, yeah. David Marcus, thanks for being here. Thanks Thank for you. having me. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. My name is John Cass, columnist and editorial board member for the Chicago Tribune, and Scott Shalady, market analyst for Fox. Uh, we're just two conservatives in the blue state of Illinois talking to you and hoping to talk to one of the wittiest fellows around, Chadwick Moore. Hello, Chadwick. <laughs> hey, guys. How's it going? How's it going, Chadwick? Good. What's going on with you? Oh, you know, just living the dream here in Nightmare City, New York, where uh, we're still eating in bus lanes and can't go to church and um, all that good stuff. If you uh, if you should know this by now, everyone who's listening, Chadwick Moore is a journalist, public speaker, political commentator, but really, he's really a culture critic. Uh, he He's a weekly columnist and editor at The Spectator. You often see him on Tucker Carlson. Uh, he's also the former editor-at-large of Out Magazine and The Advocate, and uh, he works. He's, his work has been published, all, you know, all over. Chadwick, what is going on in New York, in the most beautiful city, where Andrew Cuomo is the boss of the state? What is happening? <laughs> oh, gee, well, where do I start? Um, it's uh, well, a school's just opened, so there's that. Uh, 
this morning. He's a public school teacher in the Bronx, and uh, he was um, in the South Bronx. So you're talking about, you know, probably the some of the worst areas in the entire city in terms of crime and uh, poverty. And uh, he was just letting me know that uh, at their faculty meeting this morning, the entire conversation was about uh, defunding the police and how uh, all their students are traumatized by systemic racism and the COVID. And, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much the, uh, where we're headed on the education system. But the, the schools have reopened, surprisingly. Of course, that was a, uh, only because it was so politically toxic for the Democrats to keep the schools closed. But um, pretty much nothing else is open. Um, there's uh, still the restaurants. They're still saying that, um, <laughs> that uh, they're freaking out because they don't know what they're going to do when you know, winter is just around the corner. Because now for the restaurants and bars, outdoor dining, I mean, people are literally eating in bus lanes. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Uh, the city is still pretty – it's picked up a bit from, from the height of the – of the uh, the lockdown, there's still you know more people are out, but it's still you're looking at you're in Manhattan on a weekday afternoon, and the city is operating at maybe 20% capacity. Uh, the streets are still pretty dead. There's still not a lot of traffic. Um, I think the New York Times estimated about 20% of New York City has fled, and who knows how many people are going to come back. So the first time since I've lived here, Manhattan has uh, I think about 13% um, uh, empty real estate, empty apartments which usually it's about 0.1% empty. Uh, so who knows what's going to happen here? Um, I don't really see New York returning to what it was. I mean, it was already sort of on the way out with the Blasio, uh, with, with the skyrocketing rent, the exorbitant taxes, and then we had this double whammy of the virus, the riots, the looting. Um, I think a lot of people are just saying, why do I live here? I don't really have to live here. I can work from anywhere. Yeah, it's like the joys of the city are negated, right? And those were the things you stayed for. You put up with the ugly parts of the city for the joy. And then now that there's no joy and you just have ugly, you know, uh, see you later. Florida, here I come. I think, I think that's exactly right, yeah. Who likes ugly anyway, you know? <laughs> I want to sit, right, I want to exactly. go to, you know, I want New York to be what it used to be when we go to, like, political conventions and back when newspapers actually paid, you know, paid you well and took you out to lunch and dinner uh, <laughs> right. and we hit all these great re- Italian restaurants and it was so beautiful people Central Park now what escape from New York right, right boys same in Chicago right. same in Chicago so Chadwick do you, do oh, you, th- yeah. do you think to some degree <clears throat> uh, it's a leading question because you'll be able to tell where I stand on it by just the question but I mean Look, things are so bad in Chicago and so bad in New York. We might as well commit Harry Carey and suicide um, to, to get a – they're going to have to throw us a lifeline if we do that. Because if we try to cut and slash and, and trim our way out of this, we'll, we'll get nowhere except for a bad, a bad reputation. Right, yeah, yeah. And you guys, I mean, it's like has there been a weekend in Chicago this summer since the riot started that there hasn't been at least 50 people shot? I think it's, I don't think there's been one that's been below 50. It's been like it's been crazy for you guys. I mean, the violence here is uptaking a lot, but you guys are, have, have dealt with this problem for a long time. I just wrote a piece uh, for the Tribune about a little girl cut down in the gang wars. We call it gun violence here. <laughs> the politically correct right. It's really street gang wars all over for, for drugs. Uh, Chadwick, would you stick on for the stick around for the next segment? This is John Cass. And Scott Shelley sitting in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. In 
Dan Prof Show with uh, filling in for Dan with Chadwick Moore, culture critic, spectator, writer, a man who I guess edits uh, political videos now. What's going on with that? With the political video stuff? Oh, uh, which videos? Which are you referring to? Aren't you? Aren't you? Maybe I have it wrong, but I thought you were involved with political, you know, videos as well, doing some sort of video work. No, do I have that wrong? We'll just move on. Oh, there's a, well, so there's a, there's a, 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 a initiative called uh, Outspoken, Get Outspoken, that I've been uh, doing some editorial content for. Uh, it's, uh, it's from the Log Cabin Republicans, which is the, the sort of national uh, LGBT Republican group. And this is their uh, digital initiative that was just launched. And it's sort of, it, 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 it's really punching back at specifically the LGBT lobby and media and all their friends in mainstream media and in Hollywood who, uh, uh, you know, are just so insanely Trump deranged, so far left wing. And they've really gone from a place of being uh, for, you know, gay equality or whatever, like equal rights, equal access to being towards, towards like gay supremacy, basically, and trans supremacy and overreach. Um, and it's really funny if you look at all of the and, and you know, it's an important thing to, to look at because the gay lobby is so well-funded, they're so effective. It may be like 4% of the population, but then you look at all the people who are, are you know, all the friends, all the family members, all the co-workers, right. all the people who sort of get on board with this stuff, right? Um, and you look, at, you look at what the gay lobby pushes in their, in their rhetoric about Trump. So it's things like, you know, the, the Human Rights Campaign, which is the, the largest and most powerful uh, gay lobby um, and one of the most evil, in my opinion. Um, they, they published this, uh, this, this, you know, 50 anti-LGBT moves from the Trump administration. And you what? go and you look at, at uh, the things that they list, and you just, just peel back the surface just a millimeter, and you see what's really going on. So let's say something like um, Trump banned gay people from adopting children. Well, no, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> what the Trump administration did is uh, they lifted an Obama-era ban on um, uh, religious adoption agencies that uh, that um, that basically the Obama administration said we're not going to be funding if you don't adopt the gay couples, right? Well, so, for example, that, that led to less children being adopted. The Catholic Charities of Chicago actually closed their doors after 40 years because they're afraid uh, of losing funding over it. Well, now they're able to reopen. So what that means is more children are getting adopted uh, after these rules have been lifted, and there's not a single state that bans gay people from adopting. There's gay people have plenty of options that they want to adopt. Uh, and so all of these sort of things that they that they um, bring up are all about kind of crushing religion, crushing Christianity, uh, crushing um, any sort of challenge to their worldview on sexuality and gender and how things are supposed to be. And what the Trump administration has done time and time again, and this is sort of what the Outspoken Initiative seeks to uh, communicate to the population, is um, they basically just they've gone back to more constitutional, more constitutional attitude towards these things. So giving religious groups and organizations the right to operate how they see fit and everyone else can operate how they see fit as well. Um, the, the, the gay rights movement and all this craziness that's going on with them 
has become an anti-constitution movement. It's become an anti-First Amendment movement. And um, a lot of people don't realize that. They just see the headlines in the media. They think, and, and this can be, you know, this can extend to race or sexual orientation or whatever. They just think that, you know, the president's some bigot who hates this group or this group uh, when it couldn't be further from the, from the truth. Chadwick Moore of The Spectator and other venues, uh, I've always, I haven't studied his life the way I studied Obama's life. Uh, but I can tell you, I can just look at the pictures of uh, all the wives of Trump, right? Beautiful women. I mean, if you think of Trump as a person, you think of a maybe he might be a libertine, but I don't think that's I don't see him as an evangelical, even though he's supported by them and supports their views. I've never heard anything from him that's anti-gay or anti. Forgive me if I don't get all the letters in there. <laughs> Do you get that sense from the man, Chadwick, that he's like that? No. Does he really care? What? It's almost like I think he does You know, he wouldn't well, care. He, he's very much the kind of guy who, uh, you know, look at someone like Rick Grinnell, you know, who's, who's become kind of a hero on the right for his, you know, his, his, yeah. his ball busting when he was at the, acting DNI. And, uh, but, you know, the President Trump, I mean, the guy sees born and raised in new york city he's like a real estate guy he's been in business his entire life it's it's absurd to think that he would like to dislike any certain group he's had to work with all sorts of people his entire career he's the sort of man and this is what i think really drives the left insane and why they really go why they double down on this and try to produce these narratives is he's he is he is more of a libertine and he is a guy who 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 bases his he wants to he wants to know what people can do what they can accomplish he wants the best person for the job he doesn't just want to tick identity boxes if you happen to be gay if you happen to be a woman if you happen to be whatever that doesn't matter if you're the best person for the job and who doesn't want to be treated like that you know it's it's the left is just so openly gone to this place where they actually are advocating that they want to be coddled and recognized for immutable traits and have special privileges because of those immutable traits uh which is you know deeply anti-american and uh and deeply hurtful to all of these groups. It seems um, that we've and- been we've been discussing throughout these this uh, program, I guess a theme that's developing, which is uh, the left seems to be all about force, whether it's the force of the government hammer or the cultural hammer. Everything is force with them. Everything. It's uh, either shaming or canceling or give me your beer. What do you do, Chadwick, if you're in a bar? And people start screaming at you. Give me my, give me your beer. Pour your, raise your fist. What do you do? How are you supposed to deal with that? What, what's a civilized way to deal with that? Right. Yeah. Well, I have been in bars and people started screaming at me when they recognized me from Fox News. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was to get out, not give me your beer. <laughs> but, um, That's why I wear a mask. Right. I wear a mask everywhere. I was at, at the store, in the parking lot, having some fresh air with my, you know, by myself with a cigar, and uh, people come up to me, Bernie bros, and they say, "Who? I know you. You know, I've got the mask on. Don't I know you? I'm like, I'm like, no, sir, you don't. I don't know you, sir. <laughs> I don't know you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> well, the mask, the mask that might be a blessing for people like us at times. <laughs> right, right. Chadwick, Chadwick Moore, you could read him in The Spectator. You can follow his great work all over the place and uh, again as cultural critic critic there is no one better than you sir thank you very much for being here thanks for your time thank you very much my pleasure
Croft Show, John Cass and Scott Shelladian uh, for Dan, who's golfing. And thank you for golfing, Dan. Appreciate it. I hope you have a lot of fun, my friend. What, you know, when he's golfing, I've never golfed with him because I hate golf. I've never golfed in my life. I've golfed, but never with him. But I find one thing about him that really bothers me about Dan Croft. Just one, just one thing? Just one thing. He hates soccer. You notice that? Ugh. Now, you spent time in Britain. Yeah, 16 years. I have a British passport for it, by the way. There you go. And I I used to think it was commie when I was, you know, my kids, I I wanted to watch, uh, I I wanted them to watch the Bears-Packers game years ago. And they're like, Dad, check this out. And they're watching John Terry highlights. Oh, really? The great center back from Chelsea. One of the greatest defenders in the history of the game. Right. And, uh, yeah, so they got hooked. They were players. They played all through college. And um, I just got hooked on the game. And it just irritates me that Dan, who's an intelligent man, should understand that soccer is a modern, perfectly modern game where things are not scripted out like a Joe Biden news conference, but free-flowing. It's all about freedom. It's right, a conservative and, game. And there are some subtleties of the game that are huge uh, that people, unless you follow it, you would not get, right? And to some degree, I suppose you could say that about baseball. or, But I almost kind of feel like, John, I, I was an American football player uh, at high you school. You played in college, I was, right? a, I was a bench warmer at college. I don't want to overstate my importance. But um, but a good school, University of Colorado. You know, we yeah. were ranked in the top 20. Um, but I feel sometimes as though that soccer is almost chess and, and football is checkers, you know? Yeah. Because there is an orc, you know, I, I said it to you before we went on, there is a really big deal about an away draw, right? You know, like you go to the, you, you play home and away. You go to their, their, their park and you tie, you know, one-to-one or is it near, you know, nil-nil or 3-3, three, three, for instance. But then there's a lot of goals scored with 3-3, three, three, so then that's going to come into the aggregate score at some point in time. Right. So it's a really interesting um uh, sport to watch and play, and obviously, the, this, you know, there's more running than anything else. And it's, uh, it's. I found um, that it was a very tribal uh, because of the parts of London, just, just like our politics in America. Well, yeah, but I mean, yeah. you, you, you have the city of London, and then right. you've got five, you know six or seven or maybe eight huge soccer clubs in London. You know, Chicago's only got you know two baseball teams, and that's right. hard enough, right? So it's really interesting that way. I think it's uh, you know something that you know, obviously Dan, maybe we can coach him up on it. But. We, I'm not going to coach him up. I'm going to expect him to come to the game the way, you know, when he talks about right. uh, Chesterton and uh, the great poets of his life. Uh, <laughs> he expects his listeners to, to gravitate to right, that, right? Right, yes. Men without chests and so forth. Yes. How many times have I heard that? Flannery O'Connor, come, <laughs> come to the game, Dan. And you know what's great? He cannot stop me while he's gone. He's gone, and I'm just telling you, give soccer a chance. It's the beautiful game. This is the Dan Proft Show.
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. This is John Cass from the Chicago Tribune and Scott Shelley from Fox Business, market analyst, talking now to uh, one of my another one of my favorite writers, David Harsanyi of the National Review. The um, story I want to talk to him about. Well, there's two, two of his most recent columns. Questions the media should ask Joe Biden is one. As uh, since I'm in the media, I, I've seen politicians ask questions, and I've seen them not like the questions they're asked. But it seems that there's a different rule for Joe Biden. Hello, David. Can you How are you? Can you explain what are the Biden rules, David Harsanyi? I'm not exactly sure. I think they're pretty unprecedented. Biden has um, not really taken questions or campaigned in the way that other presidential candidates have. Now, part of that's obviously because of coronavirus, but part of it is that the media doesn't you know, he doesn't. He has sort of staged questions going on, and also when the media gets a hold of him, they don't really ask him any hard questions. I think it was uh, Friday last week when he had a sort of press conference with the media, and the questions were just embarrassing. I mean, they were just softballs, you know, about how he felt about Donald Trump and how upset he was about Donald Trump and how angry he was about Donald Trump, but none of the questions that would give, I think, voters insight into where his positions are today. Before we get into the questions that media should ask uh, Mr. Biden, I want to get to the to the first part of your column on it. You, you write, an Atlantic reporter asked Biden about anonymously sourced claims published last recently in the Atlantic that Trump had made belittling remarks about veterans. When you and here was the question: When you hear these remarks, what does it tell you? about Trump's soul and the life he leads. I, I, I'd be, if I had ever asked a question like that of a politician, I would want to take a long walk in the woods and not come back. Right. I mean, I used to be on an editorial board and we'd have politicians come in and it was a great chance, you know, no matter what your ideology is or whatever you're into, you know, to really ask the questions that people wouldn't ask a politician because he had, had to answer them. And when you have that kind of access, you know, you're, you're lucky, right? So as a journalist, to have access to a presidential candidate and to ask a question like that is just embarrassing. Are these uh, events with Biden so scripted that uh, he picks the uh, his people pick the questioners in advance, and then uh, he's given the answers in advance to questions that they most likely would ask. It seems like that. Yeah, it seems like that. I mean, I have no special insight, but uh, I know it was yesterday. I think you know he got caught uh, asking them to move the computer or teleprompter or whatever closer. Um, I mean, obviously, <laughs> these guys these guys know the questions that are coming, right? So they should have answers prepared. But uh, to have that kind of staged, you know, level of staging, is it doesn't bode well for them, I think, if, if, you know, in debates and things like that. But we'll see. 
We'll see, and we'll see how it'll be covered, because as long as he stands upright and moves his mouth and words come out, even if they're uh, gibberish, I I believe that much of the media will uh, pronounce him a victor. Oh, fawn, yeah. I, I, uh, I liken this to an in-school, in-state rivalry between schools, right? You've got a Division One school and a Division One AA school, right? And when they play each other, if the Division One school does not trounce the Division One AA school by 30 or 40 points, say, in football, it's a victory for the Division One AA school. And everybody's getting very, very confident about this uh, debates with Trump. And I, I think that it's a much bigger risk than most people are thinking because if he can stand, deliver a few sentences and get through it, he will be declared the victor. He will. Yeah, I think they made a mistake in 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 going too hard after how you know he couldn't couldn't be coherent basically because as you say if he is anything you know if he is coherent in any way they're gonna they're gonna say it was a victory I think lowering expectations is it was wasn't as smart for the Trump campaign. Right. As they right. Well, before we even get to that point, although the debates are coming, uh, he might even uh, Biden might even talk to reporters again, and if he does. If he does, uh, what should he be asked, David Harsani? Well, I mean, he has had a long career, right? So he has taken a number of positions, and I think the first thing I would ask him would be to, to just let me let America know which one of the bills, his major bills that he sponsors and, and wrote, like the crime bill in 1994, or you know, the many abortion bills he wrote or his vote on, on various wars abroad. I mean, which one of the, the things that he's done over the past 40, or he did during the 30-whatever years he was in the Senate, does he still support? I mean, is there any bill that he backed in the Senate that he still supports, and which one is it? I mean, I would love to know that. Uh, more specifically, you could just ask him about the things that he, he said during the primaries just now, how he supported defunding the police using the, the um, definition of defund the police movement has for itself that he's going to redirect funds away from the police during, incidentally, you know, spiking crime, especially in cities like Chicago, et cetera, to, away from the police departments. Does he support it? And if not, why? Why doesn't he support it anymore? Um, yeah, I'd ask him about his the new Green New Deal and why he wants to bring California policies to America as California is uh, experiencing rolling blackouts because of them. I would ask him about why he wants to, to take away and bring back Obama era policies where uh, where in college students are no longer have the you know presumption of innocence when they're accused of sexual misconduct when he himself was accused of something like that and never you know and 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 and, and was lucky enough to have that presumption that he doesn't want to give others so those are just some of them and some others about. like uh, you promised to put Beto O'Rourke the man right. who said hell yes we're going to take your guns in charge of charge of gun control efforts in the Biden administration right is it going to that promise. Kamala Harris says that she wants to confiscate guns as well. I mean, where does Biden stand? It's a little bit unclear on his uh, page there. And also, you know, on abortion, which is, he, Biden has now taken the position that is incredibly unpopular. It's not, oh, you know, Roe v. Wade should be saved. It's that there are no limits on abortion to the ninth month, and it should be funded by government. But no one's going to, you know, he dropped his 47-year support of the Hyde Amendment in one day when uh, he you know, when there's a little pushback on it. So where does he stand now? What does this tell us about the fact that he's not being asked these questions, but being asked questions about how do you feel, don't you hate Trump as much as we do, or whatever. The, whatever. The, it's almost like a bit, like an old when Saturday Night Live was funny, you know. 
but but I guess they can't. The irony is dead, right? They can't even see themselves in it. But how? I mean, what does it say about our culture in journalism, particularly when these questions are not being asked? Well, I mean, I, I've you know been writing about this for a long time. But I think journalism is dead. Essentially, you have legacy media is just a, an arm of the Democratic Party, and I know we, you know people have been saying that for a long time. And there's always been bias, but there's a difference between bias, which we can read and read through the prism of their bias and figure out things. And when you have an activist group, which is what many in the media act like, I'm not saying every single reporter, but in general, political media acts as, as, uh, as an activist arm for the Democratic Party. And this, the only way to fight back against that is not to complain about it, though I think we need to bring up and show their bias. But the thing that needs to be done is the conservatives and or people maybe just want straightforward journalism need to build their own organizations and institutions to fight back because it has gotten out of control. It, uh, once Donald Trump became president, they felt like they had no longer needed to answer to anyone, you know, meaning any standards of journalism. As you see this Atlantic story where, okay. you know, you have it's just completely anonymously sourced with no other explanation that the people who are being protected don't want to deal with Twitter blowback. I mean, that's just insane. So um, anyway, so I, I think that there's just a big problem uh, in journalism, and, uh, and that's a big problem for, for, for democratic values and, and institutions, whether you like Donald Trump or not. I mean, they're, the very aggressive questioning of Donald Trump every day would be fine by me, and it is fine by me. Me as too. Long as it was employed to others as well, which it's not. That's the problem. It's not that they're tough on Trump. It's that they let everyone else slide who they like. And remember, they uh, treated uh, Barack Obama as if he were the Mr. Tumnus character in the Chronicles of Narnia when he came in, right? They hugged him and wanted him to feed them cakes and tea. And they just loved the man because he was so huggable. And now um, this. We're going to be right back with David Harsanyi of the National Review to talk about something else. What happens in November and what happens to the Republic. This is John Cass and Scott Shelley filling in for Dan Prof from the Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back on The Dan Proft Show with John Cass and Scott Shelley filling in for the great golfer who should be here while we're working. David Harsani wrote this other excellent piece. I mean, I just, I know writers get queasy when they hear other people praising them, and with good reason. But I read him all the time. And uh, this piece, Democrats determined to treat November's election as illegitimate unless they win, by David Harsani, was published September 6th. In the New York Post, I would believe also was it covered, uh, carried by the Review, National Review, or is this special yeah. to the Post? No, it was a syndicated column, yeah. Yeah, and uh, this one evokes one of my favorite themes, which is uh, m- political muscle, Chicago way style, uh, 
and it's got this the killer line. You got a, a nice country you got here. What we're seeing is um, in media, beginning with the Washington Post of a few weeks ago and also many, many others, people are writing about worst-case scenarios in which uh, if Joe Biden doesn't win, the uh, we'll ha- I guess we'll have a revolution or a civil war, and uh, that's okay because, I mean, it's not okay with me or David, but that's okay, that's okay according to the writers because, uh, well, the Republicans asked for it. I can't believe I'm I'm reading this stuff, David. I can't. I, when I heard the Washington Post story, when I read it, I thought, "My God, where, how far have we gone?" I just can't put my arms around it, my head around it, to see what they're trying to lead us to. What is it exactly? Well, there was another story actually since I wrote that. I think it was yesterday in the Daily Beast, where they cover a bunch of big liberal groups like Planned Parenthood, etc. Um, who also have a debate on whether to even accept the legitimacy of the election if Donald Tr- if Donald Trump wins the electoral college, but not the pop you know the popular vote, which incidentally is just a made up thing that you can't win or lose. So the main problem with all of this is that you have groups delegitimizing an election over something that doesn't exist that they simply wish did, which is a popular vote. That's not how any president has ever been elected. So to say that you won't accept the legitimacy of election because a bunch of people in California and New York came out to vote in bigger numbers um, undermines people's understanding, which I'm, you know, because of lack of civic education, I think is probably pretty widespread on how elections work and what fairness means and how and why federalism exists in America. So um, their ideas, basically that Washington Post piece was about uh, war games played by Democrats and not low-level Democrats, talking about John Podesta and people like that, where they say basically that unless Biden wins both, uh, you know, uh, the electoral college and a dramatic, you know, huge landslide victory, that there's going to be basically domestic unrest and you know, a big legal and constitutional crisis. And that is a dangerous thing to preemptively say when you don't even know how an election is going to turn out. And, and, and Scott Shelley here, um, David, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I think that ha- having said that, um, I, I don't think I've ever heard, to your words, I've ever heard a politician say, uh, we're running this race to win the popular vote. Never once. I mean, even Hillary Clinton the last time around said we, we're, we're trying to get the most electoral votes. We're going to be competitive in every state. Yeah. That's how we run our elections. Right. State by state elections. So it's, it boggles my mind that in one election cycle, they've totally turned their back on that and are now starting to stir this debate amongst, like you said, those folks that really probably didn't take civics very seriously. Um, and they weren't it, taught it. Right. Yeah. They weren't taught it. Right. I right. mean, the, the McCormick Foundation is now... Uh, send uh, funding with big money, uh, civic education back in the schools. But for years, it hadn't been taught. And all these woke children, you know, these young women who rescue pit bulls and talk about their emotions. Um, this is, uh, I find it to be dangerous. It's almost, my father came here, David, in, after, in the 50s after fighting the Italians and the Germans, and then the Greek communists in 1946. It began at, in Sinagma in Athens. And it's almost as if 
they're spoiling for it. It's it's like it's frightening because with the mail-in vote and the uncertainty there, and then this th- these arguments being made, uh, I I just uh, try to put some context around this, David, for me, please. Well, you know, it ha- when when Trump won, I think it broke a lot of people. So you have Democrats who just couldn't handle it. So to delegitimize the election, they said they talked about the popular vote as if it mattered. They talked about Russia as if they could steal the election and your souls through the internet, you know, through Facebook. Right. And then, you know, that then they let in the radical left into their movement, into the marching, etc. And a lot of those people are not just civically illiterate, perhaps they are, perhaps they're not, but they actually want to overturn the American order. They don't believe in federalism. They don't believe that Oklahoma should have a say in how it governs. They want direct democracy, and that's what they've wanted for a long time. That's what progressives want. So they keep, uh, you know, pretending that the Electoral College is some kind of loophole where it's specifically written in to be that way. So um, they've convinced a lot of people and a lot of people who are sometimes, you know, occasionally they become violent around the country as well. And that's a dangerous thing. The problem here, the difference here for them is that the wrong people, I think, have guns. And I don't think in the end you're going to see what you saw in Europe that you just spoke about, or I hope not. Um, I don't buy that states will secede as this war game or threaten to secede as war games claims. Um, and if they do, if California says we're going to secede, then, you know, the country might fall apart. And I think that that may one day happen when people stop listening to the Supreme Court or stop listening to Washington. But maybe Texas and maybe Oklahoma and maybe other states that do as well. And then you're just going to have a very loose confederation of a country. We started with, uh, you know, they love federalism when they can shut down the economies of their states and they hate it when it involves a state-by-state election. Um, the whole thing is rather inconsistent, but one thing, one thing's for certain, the aim of delegitimizing and destroying um, the system from within has been a long-standing goal. And, I see, and what I see now... The, the Kamalists of Washington, the establishment Kamalists, who've been fighting Trump every step of the way, are now in league with these popular or populist revolutionary types. Yeah, you can't have, again, you, could, you don't have to like Donald Trump to think this. You can't have an election and then of a president that is, that, is, that is conducted in the way every other election has ever been conducted for the presidency, and then he wins, and then you have the entire administration trying to stop him from governing rather than and delegitimizing his presidency through the press that uh, you know, just you know, siphons or relays that information anonymously all the time to do it, um, and then you know, believe that you can just go back to normal after. I mean, it's, it's, I just don't think that's going to happen, and this all corrodes trust in government, the, the important kind of trust in elections, things like that. So, and it corrodes trust in the media, and it can erode trust in how things work. So I think that that all leads to a bad place. But, I, I, you know, at some point, you have to fight back, too. David Harsani from the National Review, thanks for being here on the Dan Prof Show. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. It's the end of the world. danproffshow.com
We're back on the Dan Croft Show. This is John Cass and Scott Chalady filling in for Dan Croft. You know, Scott, I've got the best job in the world. I don't mind bragging about it. Uh, not that I'm great at it, but I have the best job in the world. I read a column, newspaper column in my own city, and I get to talk to people, interesting people, all day. If I Yeah, want about to. your own city, right? Yeah, About my own city, like the people we've had on as guests. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I like to do at the end of a week is kind of like think about it to myself, like wrap it up. Like, what was it? What happened here? And I can't think of a better guest to wrap up this show than my friend, Professor Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Chicago, regular contributor to The Spectator, to Real Clear Politics, uh, and many, many other publications. Dr. Lipson, thanks for being here. Great to talk to you, John. Scott, nice to meet you. Nice meeting you, sir. Uh, Charles, the uh, what are we seeing in America now with discussions about coups and delegitimizing the November elections and the Washington Post, you know, almost fantasizing. It's almost like coup porn or something, <laughs> fantasizing over bloody end to the republic. It is really kind of sickening to me. What do you see? Uh, am I overstating it? And would you... Give me a C minus for that uh, summation. I was going to give you a C minus just for <laughs> uh, just for general looks. Because you, uh, you know I'm pretty presentation, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, there are more and more teachers who grade you based on whether you actually just agree with them. In which case, you get an A from me, John. <laughs> well, then I'm guilty as charged. I, I find that that just so disturbing. Listen, I think I think things are really grim and without going over things that everybody who's listening knows, let's talk about a few things that are kind of uh, the background noise. You know how uh, astrophysicists listen for what they call background radiation or background noise when they're looking out at the the stars and then they they want to see blips against that background radiation, but the background radiation is not just that we are much, much more deeply split um, on ideological grounds than we've ever been um, since 1860 uh, in this country and are represented more by ideological parties than we have been uh, since, let's call it 1936, when a kind of traditional Republican, Alf Landon, ran against FDR uh, and the New Deal. But that was well before the big expansion of government. So in addition to the fact that we're ideologically split and we have two parties that are running as ideological parties, we have, we have two other background issues that are worth thinking about. One is that virtually all of the major institutions in our society uh, have lost public confidence. We just don't have any confidence in them. Um, uh, So, uh, for example, I just happened to see that CNN ran a very touching picture of Joe Biden with uh, one of his young children at the time after Joe had become a widow and the child had lost his sister and so forth. 
a, a tragic situation. And they photoshopped the Redskins logo off of the child's cap. And they didn't tell you that they had modified the picture. And I thought, well, my goodness, this is just like that situation where CNN had a guy standing in front of, you know, just flaming chaos and talking like Baghdad Bob saying, there's nothing to see here, please move along. Fiery but mostly uh, peaceful. Yeah. Right. Fiery but mostly peaceful. It became a kind of a joke. But the pr it's not a joke that people <clears throat> now look at almost every institution, the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts, uh, just newspapers, uh, federal judges. Whenever you see a decision now, uh, I mean, the first thing you think of is who appointed that judge, not this is a, a legal decision. So we've got a kind of erosion, a background erosion of trust in institutions so that if you get an outcome that looks like Bush v. Gore, a, basically a tie vote in 2000, nobody went out into the streets. It, it sort of ended peacefully. There was a decision by the Supreme Court, and it was done. I don't think that would happen now. I'm not saying there would be a civil war. I, I don't think for the second, for the second one, Dr. Lipson, I, yeah. I hope we can come yeah. back in the second segment, if that's okay Let's with you. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it, my we're, friend. We're on the Dan Prof Show, talking to Charles Lipson after the break. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Prof Show. And here we are back. I promised uh, Dr. Lipson that uh, we would continue that second point. I'm John Cass. This is Ed Scott Shalady, and we're sitting in with Dr. Charles Lipson on the Dan Prof Show. So, Dr. Lipson, Charles, par pardon me, why am I saying doctor? I never call you doctor to your face. <laughs> Sorry, well, your man. insurance ran out anyway, yeah, right, so okay. I, you can't use doctor with me. Right, okay, know. sir. So, are we in a revel given the... the uh, fear of the virus and the hysteria of the people mm -hmm. and the um, deconstruction of the and delegitimization of the institutions from, you know, religion, government, judiciary, everything. When you we know, have massive changes in how we think of marriage, just every social institution. I'm not saying that these are all bad changes, quite the contrary. I, I'm happy about some of the changes, but so is this do. one. Is this when the good student writes the paper for uh, Charles Lipson on Princess de Lamballe, who thought she was part of the revolution and then quite suddenly lost her head? Yeah, this is like uh, what is it, uh, King uh, Charles the First of of England, who began his reign at five foot ten and ended it at five foot even. Um, ten inches, huh? <laughs> That's a big <laughs> damn head. There is one other. There is. I feel like we're standing uh, to to quote an, a great old song from the '60s. We're standing on shaky ground. Um, the we're standing amidst the San Andreas Fault, and one of the other background issues I mentioned the sort of 
ideological parties in an ideological country and lack of trust in institutions. But I want to mention one other. We're in the midst of an industrial revolution that is fully as large as the one that changed us from an agricultural society into an industrial one. And this is dislocating all kinds of people. My, my two children, adult children, both work at jobs that didn't exist when they were in high school. Your job and my job did exist. Our professors and newspaper reporters and broadcasters have existed for a long time. But look at things like podcasts, where, which is in effect a new form of radio. And look at streaming television. And look at the fact that both of my children work from, from home, living in Austin, working for a company that's in uh, Kansas City. And they have people working for them who don't even live in the United States. So, And these jobs require better schooling and a lot of discipline at a time when people recognize we don't have good schools. So are we in a revolutionary period? I would say yes. I would say that we're in a very unstable period. It's hard to know. Uh, and we're in a, a period in which there is a very little sense that the public has that our political institutions are legitimate. And I think that that's frequently a kind of revolutionary moment. But I'm always reminded of the late 1960s, which I lived through uh, as a college student. And I'm reminded how quickly that ended with a stable underlying society. What bothers me now is that I really do wonder how stable the underlying society we have is. You know, I I, uh, I feel this. I feel that way as well. I feel the same thing. But I'm in. I'm I'm more or less in finance, and those exact feelings are also bubbling up to the top as well. The distrust of the Fed. Are these asset prices real? Um, a lot of the same exact things that you're talking about <clears throat> could be paralleled with finance. And it's very interesting to hear you say that because um, there's a lot of mistrust in, in, in my world as well. Um, almost right. exactly the same thing you're talking about. And I and I think that you're right. We are in a, um, you know, what I've been saying for a long time is what we've been putting in the engine is not coming out of the exhaust. And right. that's got a lot of people very troubled. And it doesn't have to be just finance. It can be something else, but public policy. But I think that uh, you're, you're, you're exactly right. Well, it's a very troubling situation. And what you see is uh, you, you saw in the Republican Party Trump uh basically destroyed two dynasties the bushes and then the clintons and now you're seeing a, a similar kind of fight in the democratic party which has kind of entered the andropov cherninko phase where they're propping up some old guy to go out front and serve as the face of the party uh but this can't last uh, so you've got uh, real turmoil in those political institutions as well. Can't we just admit that as a country, the election is between Donald Trump and Kamala Harris? Isn't it? I mean, well, I, come on, let's be real. I mean, yes, I don't want to overstate the Trump position with respect to Mr. Biden, but he's like a thin reed and uh, it's getting thinner every day. 
And, well, uh, that's exactly right. That's why they don't want him out on the trail. They don't want him doing anything other than reading from a teleprompter. And look, we're after Labor Day, and he stayed home on um, one, a, a campaign day yesterday. I mean, it's just crazy. But uh, they pro- undoubtedly, and uh, Kamala Harris held a quote round table in which she didn't take any questions. So, th- what? Your way of looking at it, which is it's a contest between X and Y, is not the way that the Democrats want it to be. They want it to be a referendum on Trump because they think that's the way they win, and Trump wants it to be a referendum on him versus either Biden or Kamala Harris. And I've got to say, if Kamala Harris rises to the top, then you're going to have a lot of Bernie people saying, hey, wait a minute. We beat her. How did she yeah, jump yeah. past us in line? She came in fifth. So I think this is quite quite uh, unstable, actually. And you know who else is going to be upset? Michelle Obama. Because if Kamala Harris is the president on January 30th, uh, she'll be saying, I'll never get that chance. Charles Lipson, University of Chicago, my friend and uh, writer in many publications, including Real Clear Politics, for another friend of ours, Tom Bevan. Thanks for being here, sir. It's absolutely my Thanks, pleasure. Charles. John and Scott. Thank you. Love you, man. See you, Charlie. Bye. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. And we're back on the Dan Proft Show. This is John Cass, columnist, editorial board member for the Chicago Tribune, and Scott Shelley from Fox, a market analyst. And uh, we're closing it out, Scott. I have to ask you, this theme of force all the way through, we've seen force. I've never been a fan of government force. And when I was a kid, working in my dad's butcher shop, the city inspectors came, Chicago, and my father had to tell me, whispered me in Greek, they want the steaks, fill up the bag. And all I filled up was red steaks. We never ate them at home in our small business. You never ate the red steaks, you sold the red steaks. But that's the first time I saw government force, and it's never changed. It's always that way. It's about people using the power of the hammer to get what they want. The problem is that hammer belongs to everybody. Mm. And so I'm seeing it now in this, in this election with the Democrats forcing people to uh, kneel or stand and raise a fist in a bar. Well, I think if you're right now, if you're a Democrat or so inclined on the left, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yeah. Right? And everything they have, looks like a nail to you. But how how do you think the American people see it? I mean, I'm in the, I, I said it. Uh, I'm in the media. I I write a column, and yeah, I I got my point of view. But how do they pick it up? I I what think I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to defer to the decency of America, I, and that sounds pompous. I think sometimes people might be angry with me saying it that way. But I told you that I lived in London for 16 years, and I just saw one of their last 
elections, we, we had this choice there, basically a smaller choice, but the same choice. And the the things that they were um, saying on the left were almost exactly what we've got now. Maybe About even Boris a little Johnson. crazier. Yeah, no, it was yeah. Uh, the left was, their, their platform was even crazier. You know, if we're going to have a minimum wage, we need a maximum wage. You can earn no more than. Mm. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. Power and force. And so um, they, were, they, were, they were soundly defeated. I mean, seats that hadn't been held as a conservative seat in 100, 110 years went conservative. And, I, and I, it just made me feel better about. There wasn't a lot of talk about it. I know there was a lot of chit chat over tea in the in, in the coffee house, you know, in the garage or whatever. But I just felt like the goodness of the Brit came through, and, and he said, "No, I don't. I'm 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 not letting you take my beer. <laughs> I'm, you're not doing that to me. You're not making me kneel. No. And it was just the, the, this basic decency, I guess. I'm, I'm I'd like to think that that carries us through, but you know, who knows? I hope so too, because uh, we're at. I keep hearing. Uh, you know, I've heard it for years. This is the most important, important election in our history. But you know what? This is the most. It kind of feels election. like it to me too. John Cass, Chicago Tribune, and Scott Shelley f- filling in for Dan. Prof. It's been a pleasure, sir. By the way, you are an icon. Oh, it's great to meet you and to see you and to share this time with you. Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next time. This is the Dan Proft Show.